In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the third Sunday in Lent, which means that we're halfway through our Sundays of Lent. The sixth Sunday is Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday. And so uh, we have 40 days, not counting Sundays, and then six Sundays. This is a time, the Lenten season, when we're given for self-examination and repentance. The tools that we're given for self-examination and repentance are fourfold. We are to fast, we're to give alms, we're to pray, and we're to read God's holy word. These four tools are not good things just in and of themselves, but they're ways in which we clean the windows of our soul. We clean that mirror that we're looking at so that we can truly perceive ourselves and our intentions and so that we can better repent and turn to the ways of God. So those four tools are ways in which we can clean that vision that we have and we can truly perceive uh, the intentions of our hearts. This is the uh, method that the Lord uses in the wilderness when he takes the Israelites out of Egypt and he has them in the wilderness wandering. This is a chance for them, not just 40 days as it is for us, but 40 years for them uh, to drop away all of those things of the world and to be focused completely upon the Lord and to be able to trust in him. They hadn't been in the wilderness long at this point. Uh, The Lord has just given them the manna. He's just given them the quail. And uh, they have not yet been given the law. It's very early in their wilderness wandering. And already they're saying they're thirsty, right? Now, if we use this as an opportunity to criticize the Israelites and say, oh, I wouldn't do that. Boy, are they, right? Then we might as well just shut the book, right? Because it's it's not even a benefit to us. It's a, a curse to us. Because now we're, uh, we're criticizing and judging um, others and their faith. Rather, if we're going to get any benefit, we have to see in ourselves the Israelites. We have to recognize that when we go without for just a little bit, when we're just a little hungry or a little thirsty, we start to panic and say, oh no, what am I going to do, right? So if we can recognize in ourselves that temptation that the Israelites are suffering from, uh, we can have some good come out of it in self-examination. So here they are crying out for thirst, and that thirst, that need for that gratification of their desires, lets them forget what God has done for them in the past. Right? It's just been very recently that the Lord, by the strength of his arm, has defeated Egypt, he's defeated Pharaoh, he's brought them out of death, he's parted the Red Sea, he's brought them with miraculous fire and cloud, led them to this place, he's already given them miraculous food, he's given them all of these things, and then they forget all of that because of the desires of their stomachs. And this is where uh, we're at in the Lenten season. As soon as I don't get what it is that I need, um, I start to forget everything that God has done for me in the past and the ways that he's taken care of me, and I begin to grumble, right? They do more than that. They test God. Now, this is a very important thing for us to look at because we are tested. We see it over and over again that the Lord tests us, and it's good that he does, right? We need testing. A teacher tests the student so that the student knows, this is where I'm at, this is my skill level, this is my ability, this is where I need to work, this is where I need to grow, this is where my focus needs to be, right? We need to test new cars, we test new airplanes, we test new recipes, we test everything. Why? To be judgmental? No, so that we can improve them, right? 
This is why God tests us, so that we can participate in that improvement, so that we can grow and learn. God tests us, because we're imperfect, and we have a goal of his righteousness. Us testing God is a very different thing. Why? Because it puts us into the place of the teacher, and him into the place of the student. It says, if you do what I want you to do, right? We put ourselves into that superior position. This is the danger of the armchair atheist, the coffee shop atheist, right? This is what you've heard over and over again, I think. The atheist who says, I can't believe in a God who won't X, Y, Z. Fill in the blank, right? Because God doesn't take care of all sick people or doesn't heal everybody from disease or doesn't uh, you know, give us all free things or whatever it is that they think God should be doing, I won't believe in him. Right? So they put themselves into a superior position of God and they're testing God. They're saying, here's my criteria that you've got to meet in order for me to put my faith in you or to believe in you. They've put themselves into a superior position to God and this is exactly the danger that the Israelites have fallen into and it's a danger that we too can be subject to. It's very tempting in our prayers to say, Lord, just do this for me. Just do that for me. I'll know that you're with me, Lord, if you do X, Y, Z for me, right? This is the temptation that we fall into all the time in our prayer. And the difficulty with this is, again, that it puts us into a superior position. Some people would say, well, how did they know any better? Right? This is before Moses gets the law. Well, if you'll remember, we've gone all the way back to Genesis 2, and as soon as God creates Adam and Eve and puts them into paradise, He gives them commandments. He tells them how it is that they're supposed to live. There's never been a time when we did not have the law of God. Even more so when we read that He made man in His image. What does that mean? It means that He made us with an ability to perceive right from wrong. We know what justice is. We know what justice is even though none of us have actually seen it. Right? We're always saying the courts don't get justice. You know, the the judges don't give justice. Nobody has ever seen perfect justice delivered. But we all know what that standard is. All children on the playground know right from wrong. They know fair. Nobody goes and teaches them. They'll teach you what fair is. Right? Because it's written onto our hearts. And St. Paul says here in Romans, he says, no one has an excuse because we can look to the created order in order to do what? To perceive the nature of God. So he's saying if we look to the natural order, if we apply our minds in a scientific manner to look and see what God has done, we will learn something about God. This is the beauty of science, right? We can learn who God is by looking at his created order. When we use our telescopes and we look at the planets and the moons and the stars and the way that they move at uh, these incredible speeds with incredible accuracy, the way that our planet is spinning around the sun at this incredible velocity, all just right, what do we learn? We learn that we have a God who is orderly, who has a plan, who has made things just right for our benefit so that we can live according to his order. What do we look at when we see uh, through a microscope, the, the microcosm of the universe? We see, again, atoms moving with just the right accuracy. In DNA, we see this beautiful double helix where if just one wrong chromosome is moved, we see sickness and even death. So God has made us in this way uh, so that we can live by his laws and standards. 
And the more that we move away from that natural world, the natural ordering of the world, the worse that we do. The Lord over and over again says, you can see the movement of the sun, you can see the movement of the moon, you can read the seasons, live your life according to the seasons. You know when to plant and you know when to bring up the harvest. Why? Because you've looked at the perceived order and you know how to order the world. Now, I'm going to talk about sexuality and human intimacy. And the, the one rule that we have to remember about this is that we've all sinned and fallen short, right? Jesus sets the standard far higher than anybody else does. He says anyone who has lust in their hearts has committed adultery. So we've all sinned in this regard, right? We've all fallen short of this regard. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman who's with her fifth husband, right? Does he dismiss her or cast her away? No, he brings her righteousness. So we're not dismissing anybody, we're not sending anybody away, but we're saying that there is a righteous way of living that the Lord draws to us. At the turn of the 20th century, there was not a church in the world that permitted contraception. Everybody rejected it. When the Anglicans met at the, middle, at the beginning of the 20th century, bishops from all over the world at uh, Canterbury, at Lambeth Palace, they addressed the question of contraception. It was uh, all the talk. And all of the bishops said, contraception is against scripture, it's against the practice of all the churches, you won't find anybody that, that admits it, and we too are going to teach against it. Why is that? Because they were saying that human intimacy has a natural consequence, which is children. And we've come so far in removing intimacy from having children that now we can have married couples who get pregnant and are surprised. This is like a farmer planting crops, planting seeds, and then being surprised when he gets a crop. Right? Why can we do this? Because we've so far removed intimacy from procreation, where it is a essentially procreative act. Human sexual intimacy is a procreative act. And the farther that we move away from that, and we make it what? Do we make it? Entertainment? We make it a statement of identity? It's who I am? We make it political? We've removed it from its natural course and order. And now we're so far away from that that we have very little to offer the world to show how it is that a human intimacy that's so far removed from procreation is detrimental to those who practice it. And then we're shocked when the level of venereal diseases and the level of unwanted children rises. Just that idea, unwanted children right, is a result of this disordered human intimacy that we even have come to the place where we hate our own children. And so this is the disorder that St. Paul is showing us and he's saying that anyone who looks at the way that the Lord has created us in the world can know the right way that we have to live our lives. And so he calls us back into that righteousness, which is exactly what Jesus does with the Samaritan woman. He breaks all kinds of social norms just in going to Samaria. He's really not even supposed to be there, by the way, right? The Jews are people of cleanliness, right? They're all about being clean. They're all about washing. They're all about being clean. They're all about not 
associating with other Jews, maintaining their distance. He's not even supposed to be there. They're definitely not about a man and a woman who are not related talking to one another in public. A second major social norm that Jesus has broken. He's not supposed to be in Samaria. He's definitely not supposed to be talking with this woman. Everybody's afraid to say it to him. Again, she's living with her fifth man, who she's not married to. Another reason that he is supposed to reject her, right? You remember the Pharisees that say, if he knew who this woman was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him, right? He was not supposed to have any kind of contact with her. And, and what, is, what does he do? He asks her for a drink, for her to share water with him, right? I mean, he's broken now three major social norms, all of which are centered around purity and ritual cleanliness. He's broken all of them. And he does it to what? To reject her? No, to save her. He tells her that the way to salvation is worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth according to God's holy will. We're supposed to discern the will of God and live in righteousness. St. John uses the disciples and their confusion as a way of teaching us. Again, if we start to think, oh, those disciples, boy, were they stupid. We might as well close the book because we're not getting it. They didn't understand why it was that he said that he had food to eat. Do we understand? We look to so many places for comfort for our bodies, for protection for our bodies, we look everywhere but the one place we're supposed to look, which is the will of God. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That is my food. That is my medicine. That is my drink. That is my sustenance. To do the will of him who sent me. I've been thinking a lot about uh, our purpose statement, our why, at Jesus the Good Shepherd. Our why is that the Lord seeks the lost, he binds the broken, he heals the sick, he brings those back who are cast away. That's from Ezekiel, and it's a little long. And I always think, isn't there a shorter way? I don't want to get rid of our purpose statement, our why. You know, I, I love the fact that we're sheep when so many of the world are chickens right? We're sheep. We're listening to the will of the shepherd. And one place that we can go, I think, to, to have a shorter version of that is right here in our psalm for the day, Psalm 95. This is our why. Why are we here? Why did the Lord tell us to come? Because he's our God and we're his people and he is our shepherd and we are his sheep. That's why we're here. Because he's God and because we're the sheep. And if we listen to his voice and we're obedient to his will, we will receive his food and we will live in his rest. <laughs>